Turn with me this morning again to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning, verses 27 to 30, as we continue our study in the book of Matthew, and specifically right now, the Sermon on the Mount. As you turn there, I, I was reminded this week of several years ago, I, I don't remember, it's probably been 15 years ago or so now, we, there was one of our classes did a, um, this uh, dessert competition for all the men. And so the men in the class, every, it was right around Valentine's Day, and all the men were tasked with cooking a dessert. And the first year it was kind of for fun. Well, you know how men tend to be competitive at times. Um, after the first year, it was no holes barred. I mean, it was all in, and everybody went to the greatest lengths to uh, cook these incredible desserts. And, and men can actually cook pretty good when there's competition involved, is what we learned. Well, one of the men, Robert, uh, one year, try not to call names from the pulpit, but you need to know who this is, um, had designed this incredible dessert, but it wasn't just the dessert, it was the presentation. He had music for his dessert and had it all queued up and ready and walked in. And, and Robert was quite confident that his dessert would win that year. He was quite, I might say, proud, Robert, um, of his dessert. And he came parading in, brings it in, and tells us. He, he gave us a cue for how, what might unfold, what he had designed and what he had planned for that evening. So... Um, there happened to be a few of, of his friends that, I won't call any names on this, uh, may have removed the CD out of his CD player. And so he gathered all the judges and the ladies around and went. <laughs> He's pushing and nothing's working. And of course, you know, we're like, <laughs> you know, just laughing. And, and it was great. It was just this anticlimactic terrible fall and and it was wonderful I don't remember if Robert won or not I have no idea I just remember that in that moment his good design for that evening was marred and ruined and destroyed by some of his friends and I will confess I was one of them and I was quite proud of that it was a wonderful night of marring his good design well we turn to Matthew five twenty-seven to 30 this morning and what we see in verses 30, or 27 to 32, really, are two ways in which God's good design for marriage is marred and ruined by sin. And it's much more serious in nature than taking a CD out and messing up some music. And we will look at that this week, and then in weeks to come, when we get back into Matthew, we're going to be out of Matthew for a little while through the, the Christmas season. But this morning... I want, to, I want us to look at Matthew 5, 27 to 30 specifically, and we think about how God's plan for marriage, his good design for marriage has been marred. We start intentionally this morning thinking about holiness and, and reading Psalm 97 and being reminded that God is a holy God. And that's important because of what I said at the beginning of our worship time, that because God is a holy God, we can trust that all he does is holy and pure and right and good. So the way he loves is holy. His goodness is holy. His justice is holy. All that he does is holy and perfect and righteous. 
And so when he comes and, and we look and, and we see that the sovereign, good, wise, and holy God instituted marriage, when we see this, we can trust that it is good. We can trust that his design is best. We can trust that the way he created us and the way he designed the institution of marriage was done in goodness and in wisdom because he is a holy and he is a good and he is a sovereign and he is a wise God. So when we read Genesis 1, 27 and 28, I just want you to hear this this morning as kind of some foundational truths before we read our text. But Genesis 1, 27 to 28, we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And later in Genesis 2, 24 to 25, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, mind you, Genesis 1 and 2 give us a a brief glimpse into God's original design, God's original creation prior to the fall, prior to the entrance of sin. And so we read this and we see this is God's original design and intent for male and female, for man and woman in marriage. And so I want to give you just five brief statements, five foundations that I believe need to be laid, need to be said before we get into Matthew 5, 27 to 30 as far as foundations regarding marriage. The first one is that God created marriage and it's good. God created marriage and it is good. The the second foundation that we need to understand is that while God created marriage and it is good, marriage, secondly, is not mandated for all people. Okay, this is important. So Paul actually calls singleness good or a gift in 1 Corinthians 7, 8. So those of you who might sit in here today or who are listening who say, well, I'm single, does that mean I have not ascended to this pinnacle of Christianity? No, that does not mean that. You're not all working towards striving to the great mountaintop of marriage. It's not what marriage is. Marriage is indeed instituted by God, but is not mandated for all people. It is what is called a, 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 a creation ordinance but it is not something that is required of all. However, with that said, while not all are called and required to be married, all are called to honor marriage and esteem it as one of God's institutions. And it does seem to be the more common uh, joining that you see among man and woman. Number three, God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. And one woman. We just read that in Genesis 2, 24 to 25. Number four, the marriage relationship is tended to be fruitful. It is intended to result in the filling of the earth, intended to result in multiplication, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, God said to male and female. And then fifth, the marriage commitment is to be an enduring covenant commitment between a husband and a wife who hold fast to one another. The marriage commitment is an enduring covenant commitment. Now, 
with that said, before we get into Matthew 5, 27 to 30, because what Jesus deals with in Matthew 5, 27 to 30 is the obviousness of the brokenness of marriage in the home. These that we just read in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, Genesis 2, 24 to 25, and the, the five foundations I gave you, these are the foundations, the ideals, the original designs for marriage before sin. But we have to recognize today that we sit here in the midst of a fallen world in which there is much brokenness. Now, I would say that in some way, everyone sitting in here today, myself included, has experienced the brokenness in the home. You have experienced in some way, in some, in some touch point in your relationship, whether it's in your own home or your home as a child or the home of someone you care about and is close to you, you have experienced the brokenness and sin in the home. And so you hear some of this and it just can hurt and it can bring up the emotions and the struggle and the hurt of past. So I want you to know that if you gather this, this here this morning and as we talk about Matthew 5, 27 to 30, if you struggle with the hopelessness, the hurt, the bitterness of brokenness in your family, I just simply want to start by saying that this, you need to know, is not God's original design for the home. The brokenness that is so so gripping on you that it seems to, to be so, such an open wound to some sitting and listening this morning. That brokenness is not God's original intent. And you need to know that God is the God who is able to heal. God is the God who forgives. God is the God of grace and mercy. And he is making all things new. He's making all things new. And so you can hope in the Lord. You can hope in Christ because he is greater than all brokenness. He's greater than all sin. And so I would say this morning before we get into the text to cast your hope upon him and to know and trust Christ and to know and experience the forgiveness that is found in him. Know that today. So in Matthew 5, 27 to 32, what we're gonna see is that Jesus deals particularly with the issue of Adultery and then the issue of divorce in verses 31 and 32. Let's read our text this morning, verses 27 to 30. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, what I want us to see first when we look at this passage is I want, I want us to see a contrast between the trajectory of our world and the teaching of Christ. So the trajectory of our world is one that is consistently stepping away from God's good design. It's consistently leading us away from God's good design for marriage. It's consistently leading us to be more permissive. It's consistently leading us to think more hedonistically, have hedonism as a, as a mindset of, of saying, I'm gonna live for my own pleasure. What makes me feel good is what I want. My pleasure governs my decisions in any given moment that I encounter. It's the guiding principle for most of our culture. So whether something is morally or ethically right matters not. 
if it stands in contrast to what I want in that moment. So because of that, what I want is, the, is kind of the, the determining factor that overrides what I should do or what I ought to do or the, the covenant commitment that I have made because the world is leading us to be more permissive and we think about marriage relationships and the way God has designed it. It's leading us to be more free, so to speak, which is a deceptive terminology for that, but more permissive, more open to doing things based on what I feel as opposed to what God has designed. Jesus, in contrast, Jesus does not lead us away from the original intent of the law, but he leads us to a deeper place in the law. He uses 27 and 30 talking about adultery and the law, the, the, the commandment did not commit adultery. He takes that moment to lead us to think more seriously about the faithfulness, purity, and integrity that is demanded and designed in God's design for marriage. You see, God's good design is, is for us to live holy lives for his glory that are based upon guiding principles that he's given us for marriage in Scripture. So, so Jesus draws us into the heart of the commandments so that we might walk more faithfully with God and that we might glorify him more with our lives. The bottom line is that, that Jesus' value system is different. It is, it's different. The priority is not today's pleasure but the priority is eternity's destination. His value system is absolutely different than the world. So the world is leading you away from the value and the meaning and the intent of the law, and Jesus is leading you into the true intent and meaning of the law as we look at this text today. I want to look at three different components of these passages. The first thing we want to look at is the intent of the command. The intent of the command. We'll look then at the internal reality of sin, and then we'll look at the call and the importance of mortifying the flesh, mortifying sin. So first, we'll look at the intent of the command. What is the intent of the command in verse 27? The intent of the command, the reason that we have this command is marital faithfulness, marital faithfulness. We, I mentioned a few weeks ago that we look at the law, the law not only shows and exposes sin, but when we read God's law and we read his word, we learn about who God is. And we learn about what is important to God. It helps us to understand who he is, what he, what he values. And we look here and we see right away in, in Exodus twenty fourteen, one of the, the Ten Commandments, we read, you shall not commit adultery. And that's repeated again in Deuteronomy five eighteen. We learn what? We learn that God values marital faithfulness. He values marital faithfulness. And why would he value marital faithfulness? Because he is a faithful God. And we read Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. We won't read the whole text this morning, but it's a beautiful passage of scripture that you need to look at when you, wanna, when you want to understand and know the meaning and the value and the beauty of marriage, how God designed it. Because God in this passage shows us that marriage should display the relationship between Jesus and the church. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. In Ephesians 5.23, you read, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and its Savior. And then verse 24 says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the intent, the, the picturing, the imaging, the, 
the um, projection of our marriage relationships should project, it should image, it should show the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ as the head, the church as the one who submits to Christ her head. Now, if that's the case, if, if that's the case, then the, the relationship between husband and wife should display this gospel relationship between Jesus and the church. And that means that this relationship is founded on covenant faithfulness. Because Christ is ever keeping his covenant. He is ever faithful to keep his covenant to his bride, the church. And so marriage should be the same way. We read in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, that God is faithful. Great is his faithfulness. We just saying that. Great is his faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 1, 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Psalm 105, verse 8, we read that God remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. And then I think one of the most beautiful passages that, that really help us to understand the beauty of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness is Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9. We read this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because, listen, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore, now listen, this is what he wants you to know. So he wants God's people to know. He says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Listen, God is faithful. He is the covenant keeping God. It simply is who he is. So if we're going to image him, if we're going to glorify him, if we're going to reflect him to the world around us, to those we come in contact with, to those in our own homes, then we live in faithfulness. And that should be displayed in our marriages. God commands marital faithfulness because he indeed is faithful and he values faithfulness. So the world may make light commitments in marriage, but God's people don't. We value enduring covenant commitments of faithfulness to one another. A, a devotion to be committed solely to one's own spouse may be sold as old-fashioned today, but it is not. God's people understand that husband and wife are to hold fast to one another in faithfulness to one another. And so when we come to the seventh commandment and we read, you shall not commit adultery, it is a serious sin it is a serious sin in our day when there are so many different ideas and worldviews and philosophies sold to us about what marriage is and what it looks like and who it's between we cannot neglect that and turn a blind eye to that and think little of that we must value faithfulness in marriage the second thing we want to look at is the internal reality of sin 
internal reality of sin. Just as last week when, when we heard and, and Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of those of old, do not murder. And then he gets into thinking about anger of the heart and the words of our lips. And he, he magnifies or kind of not really magnifies, but he focuses us in on the heart behind the law. He does the same thing here. You heard, heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. In his heart. And so we see here the internal heart dimension of the law. We can't just be legalistic and, and check off the box and say, hey, you know what? I haven't done the seventh, I haven't broken the seventh commandment. Check. Good to go. No, Jesus says, listen, there is a a heart element to this command that you need to understand. And the heart question, the question for us today, the issue that Jesus addresses is this, is your heart faithful as well? Is your heart faithful as well? It's not just your actions. Specifically, Jesus confronts lust. Now, what what is lust? Lust is is the sinful desire to have what is not yours to have. Lust is a sinful desire to have what is not yours to have. Now, we understand here, if you look at verse, verse 24, or I'm sorry, not verse 24, uh, verse 28, we understand that look does not equal lust. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery. So it's not this idea that men, women have to walk around and not look at the opposite sex. Like, look around, oh, I don't want to look, don't want to look, don't want to look. And I'm walking around with my head look, looking down so I don't see anyone who might be of the opposite sex. That is not the issue. But the issue is what's going on in your heart? Are you looking with lustful intent? And I think most of us in here should know the difference between the two. It's that lingering, that second glance. It's different than just looking and seeing someone. It is looking and wanting someone. And what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's joining the seventh and tenth commandments. Do you remember what the tenth commandment The seventh commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. And it's like, okay, physical, check. But what is the tenth commandment? You shall not covet. And he specifically says, you shall not covet who? Your neighbor's wife. And so God in the, in the Ten Commandments gives us the heart. And it, what Jesus is showing here, again, he's pulling us back into the heart and we're learning that you don't just take them one by one and go, okay, check, and now it's, it's, it's totally separated. I can look at that in isolation. But we take them as a whole. We take them as a whole. So the way that we follow all the commandments are informed by the first one, that you shall have no other God before me, that you would not worship anyone other than the Lord our God. And they all are in understanding that we are called not to covet. We're not to desire that which is not ours. We're not to look and say, this is not mine, but I want it. And it's going to be mine. I have to have that. The command to not commit adultery includes looking at another in such a way that you desire him or her in a way that is only appropriate for a husband and wife relationship. The problem 
that we run into is that we live in a day that is constantly luring our eyes to look at and to long for what is not ours. We live in a day that is constantly putting things before our eyes where we're encouraged to lust. We're led to lust and we are led to covet and want what is not ours and what should not be ours and what should be held and held dear to the marriage relationship. That's why we read, we read in 1 John two fifteen to 16, wisdom from John. He says, do not love the world or the things of, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. We look at what John says there, we look at what Matthew, or what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 and 30, we think about our eyes and we, we come to understand that when our eyes look upon what is unholy and impure, what is sinful, then it leads our minds to think about what is unholy, impure and sinful. And it leads our hearts then to desire and want and long for what is unholy, impure and sinful. There's this progression of what we look at and behold leads to what we think about, leads to what we desire and long for. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, 8 through 9, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the problem is, The lust of the eyes does not lead you to think about what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, and excellent. The lust of the eyes leads you to think about what is selfish and sinful and wicked and unholy and impure. You see, there's an issue that many of you sitting in here today are very aware of. There's a problem in our society that we struggle with that is rampant and wicked and undermining marriages, undermining relationships, stealing the hearts and the souls and the minds of men and women. An issue that used to be held dear, or not held dear, but thought to be just of an issue for men that is becoming more of an issue for women as well. It's the issue of, of looking at images, videos, pictures, etc., of what should not be looked at. Looking and beholding and casting your eyes on something that is held dear for the marriage relationship. But yet we look with lustful eyes. The world justifies it, it promotes it, it sells it, it trades it, and it will steal your soul. But the reality is that I know the truth that if we went around and we knew there are people sitting in these chairs this morning, sitting in the chairs in the foyer, watching online right now on Facebook or YouTube Live that struggle with this and are so entangled with this issue that they can't get out. And their heart is so enwrapped and engrossed in this, it is simply eating away your minds and hearts. And you think you're hiding. You think you, no one knows. You think that it doesn't hurt anyone. And those are all lies from the pit of hell. It does hurt people. People will find out. Your sin will find you. Proverbs talks about that, that your sin will be revealed. And I would beckon you and I would plead with you and I would beg with you to take that sin seriously. Take it seriously. Job 31, I remind you, encourage you this. Job says, when he, he's kind of under prosecution of his friends about the sin that he commits, he says, listen, I, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? 
What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? God sees. God knows. He is omniscient. He is all wise. He knows everything. He sees everything. He's providentially working. That means he sees what we are doing in our alone time. Our sins are not hidden from him. Or do you not remember 2 Samuel chapter 11? You remember, David, what, what happens? What leads to that encounter with Bathsheba? What leads to that sin is him looking and beholding and valuing and wanting something that is not his. It's not his. And it leads him, some would say, to break every one of the Ten Commandments, every one of God's law, then broken because of his lustful desires. It starts with lust of the eyes. So I would appeal to you from 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee those youthful passions. Flee those things that are engripping and just entangling your heart. Flee them. Run from them. And pursue Christ. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Pursue Him. Run to Him. Don't run to sin. Run to the Lord. Hear the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs 6, 23 to 25, where he says, for the commandment is a lamp and a teaching, and the teaching a light. Just his perspective of God's law, his perspective of God's word is so beautiful. It's a, it's a lamp, it's teaching that is light. And so many people, you get so entangled in sin, and you're so engripped with sin and what you see and what you behold, what you click on, what you watch, you're so entangled with it that when you hear something contrary, it's almost repulsive, it's bad. But no, Proverbs, Solomon says, no, the commandment, it's a lamp, it's teaching, it's a light. It's reproofs or, or discipline or the way of life. They're the way of life to preserve you, to preserve you. It's light, it's life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Don't give your heart to that. Don't give yourself over to that which you would see and lust after with your eyes. Listen, let me, let me make an appeal to you and to share an expectation. My appeal would be that you step away, men and women. Step away from that which has your heart entangled, that which you are watching that is stealing away the purity of your heart and your soul, is undermining your idea and understanding of God's good design for marriage, being between one man and one woman in covenant faithfulness, those things that are stealing away your heart for that, your desire for that. And instead is replacing you with a world, a worldly, sinful, impure, unholy view of that relationship. Flee from that. And my appeal to you is that you would come and you would call or talk to or text one of us pastors this week. This week. That you would call us and say, Pastor, I am struggling with this issue. I think, I hope you know what I'm talking about. I know we have a mixed audience and some young ears. I know you know what I'm talking about. Call us. That's the appeal. The expectation is that the phone will ring this week. That's the hope. That's my hope and my expectation is that one of the guys comes down and says, hey, listen, somebody just called me. They want to come and talk to me because they're struggling with this issue and they're tired of it. They're finding it repulsive and they want to get away from it. 
I appeal to you, please call. Please let us help you. We're not going to think less of you. We're not going to love you less. We're not going to go, wow, I can't believe that. He's no longer useful in the kingdom. She's no longer useful in the kingdom. No. We're going to look at you and go, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he has done a work of grace in their life and he's brought them to repentance and they're convicted over the sin that they're struggling with and entangled with and we want to walk with you in God's grace and mercy. We want to love you right out of it. We want to walk with you. Let us help you. So I'm expecting to get calls this week because I know it's a struggle. I know it's an aggressive attack of Satan in our day. Finally, verses 29 to 30 we read of the importance of mortifying sin, the importance of killing sin. Verse 29 and 30. Jesus is using a hyperbole here. Hyperbole is when you you intentionally exaggerate something to make a point. And and that's what he's doing here. He's intentionally exaggerating to make a point. In verse 29, he says, if your right eye chooses you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members then that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. He, he, he teaches the same way. He uses the same type illustration in, in Matthew 18, 7 to 9, and, and Mark 9, 42 to 48. He uses the same exact hyperbole to teach about sin and temptation. It's not related to adultery and lust. It's just sin in general. And so he's teaching here in a way exaggerating the point or exaggerating to to drive home the point. It would be kind of like me saying, we waited forever this weekend on I-75. Now, none of you are going, whoa. Like from eternity past, you have sat on I-75? That's incredible. No, none of you think that. You think, wow, he sat there longer than he wanted to and it was brutal, right? Right? That's hyperbole. It's me exaggerating something to to make a point. The traffic was terrible. It was awful. I don't want to be there ever again, right? And Jesus is doing the same thing. He's using hyperbole to express that we have to deal with sin. We have to kill sin. We know, there's a couple reasons we would know that he's speaking with hyperbole here. One is, is because we understand the biblical teaching that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So if he's speaking literally, boy, what a terrible bunch we'd be. We'd be all walking around. We'd have no eyes. It wouldn't be just our right eye. Right eye gone. Then tomorrow, left eye gone, right? Then by Saturday, right hand gone. Whoop, left hand gone. Whoa. And, you know, and it's like, um, uh, oh, what's the old movies? Um, You know, the the knights are fighting and he he cuts everything off and it's just the stump guy. And he said, I'm still here to battle, right? I can't remember the movie. You guys know what I'm thinking about. Yes, Monty Python, right. Okay. Thank you. I'm glad you guys are listening. That's good. Monty Python, the pastor's struggling, and you know your old bad movie quotes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we'd be walking around like the night in Monty Python. So we know he's speaking with hyperbole. We also see no example in the New Testament of anyone taking this literally. It's not being literally applied anywhere in the New Testament that Peter says, oh, off with your hand. Right? We don't see that literally applied. We understand Jesus is speaking with hyperbole. He's exaggerating the point to drive home. What is he so forcefully driving home then? What is so important that Jesus would so exaggerate that we would go, whoa, that's shocking. What's so important? Here it is. There's two things he's driving home. First is that sin is serious. 
Sin's serious. Jesus is saying, don't play with it. Don't underestimate it. Don't shrug it off. Oh, that's just a little lust. It's no big deal. I mean, it's just adultery. No, sin is serious. It's sin that separates us from our maker. It's sin that deceives our hearts and minds. It's sin that causes the brokenness in our homes and relationships. It's through sin that death and eternal damnation come. It's sin that warrants the just wrath of God. It is sin for which Jesus died. We have to take it serious. We have to know that sin is serious. John Owen, in in his book, The Mortification of Sin, if you want to read a helpful book that helps you go, how do I kill sin? How do I get rid of it? John Owen's little book, we have a copy out back there. Pick it up, The Mortification of Sin. He says this about lust. He says, lust darkens the mind, extinguishes the convictions, dethrones reason, and interrupts the power and influences that resist it, and then breaks out into an open flame. Sin is serious. Sin is serious. We, we think about lust and the, the sin of lust. He, he says it just starts darkening our mind. It, it, it extinguishes convictions. It dethrones reason. <laughs> Do you not see that? Do you not see that when you get so entangled in sin that it just dethrones reason that you sit here and you go, yep, yep, that's right, pastor. I totally agree with that. But then later on tonight, it's gonna dethrone reason because your heart is so entangled with it. You just cast it aside and you jump right into it. Because that lust is dethroned, your reason is cast it aside. It has interrupted the power and the influence to resist temptation. Don't underestimate the power and the destruction of lust of the heart. A second thing that's so important that Jesus would speak in a shocking way is that not only is sin serious, but because sin is serious, we must take decisive action to put it to death. We must take decisive action. So Jesus says, you gouge out your eye, you cut off your hand. And what he's saying is he's saying you need to deal decisively, you need to deal seriously, precisely with what is causing the problem. He, he doesn't say, hey, uh, go, go do this. Uh, go read those seven steps. No, he says, remove it. Get rid of it, kill it. Whatever is causing you to stumble, be specific, be strategic. Whatever it is, get rid of it. Cast it aside, get it, send it away, throw it in the garbage. Listen, the path to holiness is not paved with mutilation. The path to holiness, to growing in Christ is paved with mortification. It's paved with killing sin that resides in us. The the Christian who wants to grow in his walk with the Lord must practice the discipline of killing the sin that is in his life. It is not easy. It is painful. But I would say most of us in here know and you've seen, you're aware of those who have lost a limb, who's had a limb amputated medically, and it saved their life. Because had that limb not been amputated, perhaps it was a leg or an arm, then the infection would spread to their whole body and their lives would be lost. But the doctors give good counsel and say, we have to take your limb to preserve your life. And that was physically excruciating. It was emotionally excruciating, but it saved their life. A decisive act that had to be taken for the sake of their life. Paul says in, in Colossians 3, he teaches us a similar thing. Colossians 3, starting in verse 5, he says, put to death, put to death, not covered up, not just push it aside, not, not just ignore it or don't talk about it in public, 
No, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You know where he starts? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says, put it to death, kill it, mortify it, put it all away. Put it all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. And here's the key. He says, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put off, kill, put to death that which is sinful, that which is unholy and ungodly in you, and put on righteousness, put on that which God gives. That which, he says, I'm put on then as God's chosen, holy, chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. As, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Put it to death. Put sin to death. The same thing he says in, in Romans 8, 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's by the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit. So how do we do it? How do we do it? Let me just give you some just very practical advice as we close this morning. How do we mortify sin? How do we mortify the lust of the heart? that leads to, results in ungodly thinking, ungodly desires, ungodly actions that undermine God's good design for marriage. How do we mortify sin? First, run to the cross. The first thing is run to the cross. You, you need to understand that only a believer can mortify sin. Why? Because it is by the spirit that we put to, get, put to death the deeds of the flesh. So you first run to the cross, confess Christ, follow him. It doesn't happen by trying harder, by doing more. You need Christ. He alone brings life to your dead hearts. He alone can redeem your heart. So first, run to the cross. Second, second, eliminate what is causing you to stumble. Eliminate what's causing you to stumble, whatever it is. That's the, the teaching that Jesus gives us here. Whatever it is that's causing you to stumble, get rid of it. Is it your phone? Get rid of it. Is it your computer? Get rid of it. Now you say, but I have to have my phone because of this, and I have to have my computer. Okay, I understand that. You don't have to have the phone that you have. You could have a different phone if that's causing you to stumble. The computer that you have that has free reign and no filters and no locks, on it that you sit down and use in your basement or in a room by yourself or at late, late at night when no one's awake. You don't have to have all that. Put it in plain sight. Give somebody else the passwords to set. Put a filter on it. Set up an accountability software. Kill it. Use it for what you have to use it for. You don't have to be on social media. You don't have to surf the internet all night. Whatever it is, kill it. Staying up late nights by yourself when everybody else is in bed, if that's undermining you and a pathway to opening up opportunities for lust of the eyes, then don't do it. Go to bed. Third, don't fuel the fire. Don't fuel the fire. 
don't keep adding to it. Fire dies if we don't fuel it. If we don't feed it, it dies. If there is a sinful desire in your life, if you want to kill it, stop feeding it. Stop fueling it. John Stott says, if your eye causes you to sin, don't look. If your foot causes you to sin, don't go. If your hand causes you to sin, don't do it. I mean, that's pretty sound advice, and it's pretty simple, right? Don't fuel the fire of sin in your life. Fourth, take lust seriously. Take lust seriously, just like Job did. Make a covenant with your eyes. Stop making excuses. (laughs) Stop making excuses. Well, I just can't, or I just this, or it's just so hard. Well, yeah, it is hard. Get over it. Deal with it. Stop making excuses. Number five, guard your eyes and ears. Guard your eyes and ears. How do things come into your heart? How do things come into your mind? Through what you see and what you hear. If you're constantly flooding your ears with things that lead you away from the Lord, where are you going to go? Where's your mind going to go? Where's your heart going to go? Ding, ding, ding. You got it. Away from the Lord. This isn't rocket science. If you're constantly looking at things that are ungodly and unholy and, and that which is not leading to uh, uplifting and promoting God's good design, guess where it's going to lead you? It's going to lead you away from it. Guard your eyes and guard your ears. Be aware of what you consume on the internet. Be aware of the magazines you look at. Be aware of the pictures you look at, the movies you watch, the shows you watch. It's important. Number six, invite accountability into your life. Invite accountability into your life. Who, who's speaking truth into your life on a personal level? Who, who's asking you difficult questions? Who, who is there in your life that you see and they, hey, how's it going? Good. And they know there's more to that question and more to that answer than just, hey, how's it going and good? Who is there that would follow that up with, well, how are you doing in what you looked at this week? How are you doing with what you struggle with in that area this week? How are you doing in your relationship with your husband or your wife this week? Have somebody in your life who will ask you difficult questions. And then finally, meditate on Scripture. Meditate on Scripture. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Spend time in Scripture. Meditate on the word. How do you keep your way pure? By guarding it according to the word. What is a built-in defense mechanism about, from falling and running into sin? It's meditating on God's word, hiding God's word in our heart. Why? That we might not sin against him. Get Scripture inside your heart and your mind. Bottom line, Matthew 5, 27 to 30 calls us to highly esteem marital faithfulness and to deal seriously with sin that wages war in our hearts, that creeps in through our eyes. And so I'm just asking you this morning, church, to take this text seriously, to pursue God's good design in marriage. To esteem that. To honor it. It says the marriage bed should be honored by all. Work towards it. Encourage it. Teach it. Young people know that God has a good design. That God created you male and female. 
that marriage is between one man and one woman. Know that. Trust it because God is a holy God. He is a good God. He is sovereign. He is wise. Church, I would beg you to rest in God's forgiveness and mercy and grace. I would say in some way that this text this morning stepped on all of our toes, convicted all of our hearts. Rest in God's grace. Let Him bring healing and forgiveness and mercy to the brokenness in your life because He alone can do that. He alone can do that. And let's deal seriously with sin. Let's deal seriously with sin. Let's don't dabble with it. Let's don't underestimate it. Let's don't take it lightly. Let's don't shrug it off. Whether it's lust of the eyes or some other sin, whether it's a relationship you're entangled with that you shouldn't be, get out of it. Flee from it. Pursue Christ. Let's take sin seriously. Let's by the Spirit put it to death. I'm expecting to help some of you walk out of sin that has so entangled you. Let's do this together. Let's pray. Father, we...